0: You're in Mark chapter 2. Uh, tonight I want to spend a couple minutes talking about um, what I like to call Jesus' unexpected ministry. Jesus' unexpected ministry. I use that word unexpected uh, intentionally because I've been, uh, in my own personal study time, I've been going through uh, the book of Mark, and I'm early on I've noticed that Jesus does stuff... <laughs> In the book of Mark especially, but Jesus does stuff, and that's recorded in your Bibles, that's always unexpected. He's always frustrating someone. He's always uh, ruffling the feathers of some person around him when he's saying something or performing some kind of miracle. And he's always doing something that's unexpected. And I kind of want to look at that tonight, and we're going to look at that in Mark chapter 2. But very quickly, I just kind of want to give an overview of Mark, the book of Mark itself. Of course, you have four Gospels in your New Testaments, um, and each of these Gospels records for us Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But I think we have to step back and realize that these Gospels, even though we have them, they're not necessarily like Jesus' biographies. Right, they, they record lots and lots of things about what uh, Jesus and what he did, but they don't record every single thing that Jesus did in his life. And in fact, it, I'm, I'll read a verse from John chapter 21. John's gospel, at the, the very last verse of John's gospel, and John says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that, w- that should be written. So he's using a little bit of hyperbole, but he's also just saying that if I were to record every single thing that Jesus did, every single act of mercy that Jesus showed to people while he was on this earth, the whole world couldn't contain all the volumes that could be written. So uh, very clearly, these books are, aren't uh, year for year, day by day biographies of Jesus's life. They're more like, uh, think of them like literary essays. Each, each of these essays, these four essays, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, are given to sort of prove a point about Jesus. They're given to sort of show us um, perhaps like a different side of Jesus' ministry. I like to think of it like a diamond. You know, if you hold up a diamond in the light and you kind of rotate it, you're going to see all types of different reflections on it. And the more you rotate it, the more the light reflects off of it, and the more brilliant that diamond becomes when you hold it under that light. And I think that's kind of what these Gospels are. It's Jesus' life under a light, and you're seeing different sides of it. You're seeing different ways that Jesus affected certain people. And... Um, Just to kind of show you that fact, if you look at these books and kind of try and summarize them, Matthew, his focus in writing his gospel is to show Jesus as the true and better king. He's showing Jesus as the king of Israel, also the king of all the nations. Mark, as we're going to see, it shows Jesus as a servant. It shows Jesus kind of doing unexpected things, like I said at the beginning, and serving people, and he's not coming and commandeering people. Luke shows Jesus as a savior. That's where we get that glorious chapter in Luke chapter 15, where it shows Jesus, or excuse me, has the pictures of the shepherd going after the lost sheep, the woman going after the lost coin, and also the prodigal son returning home, those beautiful pictures of salvation. John is really one of the most theological books. It's really showing us Jesus, the son of God, as God himself. So all throughout the book of John, uh, he's writing to prove that this guy who is walking the earth, he's God in the flesh. So that's why he's, re- he's recording miracle after miracle. John records the most miracles. And he's doing that to prove a, a, a specific point. Um, but we come to... Uh, the Gospel of Mark, and as I said, I've been studying this Gospel, and I love how Mark uh, writes. It's the earliest written Gospel, probably sometime around the mid to late 60s um, AD, so it's very, very early after Christ uh, ascended, but it's also the shortest Gospel. It's 16 chapters, but they're very short chapters, if you read through it, um, you'll get this sense of urgency. Uh, Mark moves from scene to scene very quickly. He, he goes here, and then he moves quickly to another scene where Jesus kind of jumps in time. And actually, Mark is kind of known for that. He's known for sort of jumping uh, big gaps in time uh, throughout his chapters. If you look at Mark chapter 1, and verses 13 and 14, it jumps from Jesus' baptism and temptation straight to John the Baptist being arrested. And there's obviously some uh, gaps in time there. But what he's doing is, he's, uh, he, he's uh, sort of, I like to think of this gospel as Jesus' highlight reel. You know, if you're a high school basketball player, or a high school football player, and you think you're really good, you're going to put a highlight reel together of all your best plays and send it off to all the colleges to make sure you get recruited. And um, that's sort of what I like to think about what Mark's doing here. He's highlighting all these things to prove his point, to prove the fact that Jesus is a servant. He's the Savior who serves. He's the Lord, the God, the creator of the all the universe. And yet, unexpectedly, he comes and he serves the lowest of human beings. It totally is an unexpected reality. And he's proving that point. He's, he's moving from scene to scene. And even chapter 1, if you just kind of want to survey chapter 1, you can read through it quickly. Um, it goes, it, it's, it's a packed chapter. It's 45 verses in chapter 1. And it contains Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation, Jesus' inauguration into public ministry. It, it contains his calling of disciples. It contains him healing all kinds of people, preaching in two different cities. It's, it's just um, it's moving quickly. Mark has this sense of urgency, this sense of uh, immediacy in his writing. Um, and you'll get that very quickly. Um, and again, he's doing it to prove this point Jesus is a servant. And it's an unexpected truth, this idea that God comes to serve. He doesn't come to domineer us. He doesn't come to tyrannically rule us. He doesn't come to uh, be self-serving. He comes to serve. He says that, and I'll just read it. In Mark chapter 10, it's sort of, I think, the thesis of his entire book where Mark says this, or it's actually Jesus speaking. But it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be ministered unto. He didn't come to get something. Jesus came to minister. Jesus came to serve. And in fact, if we want to go all the way, Jesus came to die. And so he's proving that very fact throughout all of his writing. Um, and we're given glimpses of that. Uh, Very quickly before we get into the meat of what I want to talk about, um, because I'm just fascinated by Mark chapter 1 because it's such an interesting chapter. Um, Jesus um, I said he was unexpected. He does unexpected things all the time. So if you look at verses 28 and 29 very quickly, um, Jesus has done some healings in the city of Capernaum. And in verse 28 it says, and immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. So Jesus is gaining notoriety, he's performing healings, he's doing miracles. People are attracted to this sort of ministry, and look what he does. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon, Peter, and Andrew with James and John. <laughs> you know what's, what, what's interesting about that? He leaves the crowd, and he goes into a home with just his closest disciples. <laughs> He leaves the popularity behind unexpectedly, not like these um, pop culture preachers that we have today that's trying to gain crowds. (laughs) He's leaving the crowd and he's going to touch individual lives. I love that Jesus does that because that's what he's doing throughout this whole thing. Jesus came proclaiming a kingdom, yes, the kingdom of God. But he also came touching people's lives, individual lives. He came to die for you and for me. He took your name to the cross when he went to the cross. And so thinking about that, Jesus was concerned with individuals. And that's an unexpected thing um, in this day. Um, But I'm struck by Mark's record of Jesus' ministry. And so I want to show you two quick lessons from Mark chapter 2. With that sort of background, that understanding of this book, I think Mark chapter 2 even further proves that point. So two quick lessons um, from the first 17 verses of chapter 2. Very quickly, the first lesson I want to talk about is about the Son who forgives. So look at verse 1. The Son who forgives, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And again, he, that is Jesus, entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. So we find really at the beginning... Uh, Jesus again. He's in a house. Notice that he's in a home. He's not in a large space attracting crowds. In fact, if you read verse forty-five, he's of Mark one. He's just left another crowd after doing more healings, after gaining a lot of popularity and notoriety. He's leaving the crowd again. He's withdrawing from that, and he's entering into a house. And in fact, I think it's the house of Simon Peter back in Mark one twenty-nine. but he's in this house again and he's preaching. He's uh people have known about Jesus, that's what it says in v- verse 1 It was noised that he was there. It was reported, it was it his his Jesus's fame was spreading like wildfire at this point because of what the healings that he was doing not necessarily for the gospel that he was preaching but for the healings that he was doing. And so he's in this house and it's quite a few days after uh the end of chapter one, and of course he's preaching. It says he preached the word unto them. Jesus never wasted an opportunity to preach the gospel. But watch what happens. Because look at verse three. He's preaching. He's in the middle of a sermon. And verse three, and they come unto him, bringing one of sick of the palsy, which was born of floor. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, that is for the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, their faith—excuse me—he said unto the sick of the palsy, "Son, thy sins be forgiven thee." <laughs> I love this story. Jesus is preaching; he's in the middle of his sermon. Uh, imagine if we had a lower roof, and all of a sudden, in the middle of my sermon, dust starts to come from the roof. All of this drywall starts falling on your heads. <laughs> And then all of a sudden you look up and there's a big gaping hole in the roof and this guy is being laid down on a nice sort of mattress by four friends. <laughs> they're lowering him down on this rope and they're determined to get their friend in front of Jesus. That's essentially what's going on here. These friends, they had this guy who has been sick of the palsy. He's been uh, paralyzed his whole life. And here they are, they are determined to get him in front of Jesus. I don't know whether these four friends knew who Jesus was necessarily. Obviously, they knew that he could heal people. They knew that he could perform miracles. But nevertheless, they knew that this guy, this, this Galilean miracle guy that they had heard of, that was noised about in the regions of Galilee, they knew that this guy was their only hope. And so therefore they persisted. It says they couldn't get to Jesus because of the press, because of the crowd. There were so many people in this little house that they couldn't even get, they couldn't fight through the crowd with their friend to, get, to put him in front of Jesus. So what do they do? They, if you know uh, the culture and the architecture of the day, these houses were small, sort of one one room uh, uh, structures that often had a very flat roof with stairs that would go up to it on the sides. So they take their friend up the stairs and they start crawling and digging through that clay roof to put their lower their friend down in front of Jesus's lap. <laughs> I just think of that scene, and I can't help but think that, number one, I would probably be part of the crowd that was annoyed by all the dirt falling on me. But then I would be surprised by what Jesus said. Because I think Jesus' response, I think, is one of the most fascinating things about this little story. Because you have these four friends, they're seeking uh, Jesus' help to heal their friend. They want their friend to stand up and be able to walk again. They want him to have a life. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, uh, be healed. What what does he say? Verse 5 again, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, get up and walk. No. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. He doesn't say, be healed. He says, you are forgiven. (laughs) I I, I imagine, that's not really what they were after. (laughs) Uh, Jesus, that's not really what we're going for. We're going for healing. We're not going for forgiveness. (laughs) But Jesus was proving a point because he knew what was going to happen next. Because where these friends sought to heal their friend's paralysis, Jesus sought to save this guy's soul. And he was out for something far better than just bodily healing. He was out to show that he was the savior of the world. And here he is, he's not just a healer. Yeah, he's been known, it's been noised, it's been reported that this guy Jesus, he can heal people. But now here he's saying, I I don't have just the power to heal people. I have the power and the authority to save people from their sins. Why is that? It's sort of like an understood message of, I am God. He's basically proving to all these people in this room that he is God. He's showing here that he didn't come to just clean up the world by fixing outside problems. Jesus is showing here by pronouncing forgiveness to this man that he has come to redeem and restore the world from the inside out. He's not just fixing the man's problems. He's uh, fixing the man's heart. Son, your sins are forgiven. But watch what happens. Because of course, there were people in the crowd that that didn't like this sort of uh, message. When Jesus saw their faith, faith, verse 5, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, "Why reason ye these things in your hearts? whether it is it as easier to say to the sick of the palsy, "Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, "Arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know." that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way unto thine house. And immediately he arose, and took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. (laughs) So these... Pharisees, these scribes and Pharisees, you have to remember that these guys were the quote-unquote religious elite of the day. They were stu- uh, very uh, strict studiers of the law. Uh, most of them would have these things on their foreheads called phylacteries, which uh, basically contained all the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch. They would have had, they would have had all those books committed to memory, <laughs> I can tell you that I have not been able to do that. <laughs> um, they would have uh, been learning the law from a very young age. But they would have, all the way through, these Pharisees, these scribes, these guys who were supposedly professional lawyers in theology, they were missing the point of what they were even studying. And Jesus proves that here. <laughs> they <laughs> Look at the hardness of their hearts here. They see this healing they see this miracle happen before their eyes where Jesus says, not only forgiveness I'm giving you, but yes, you who are paralyzed, you can't walk, get up and walk. And this guy gets up and the strength is restored to his legs and he walks. They see this miracle before them and they're not even concerned about the healing. They're actually more concerned that this guy, Jesus, he's, he's teaching heresy. Look, that's what they say in verse 7. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? They're saying this guy, he's blaspheming God. These scribes and Pharisees were so concerned that they weren't the center of the religious world in order that when this man, Jesus, started preaching a message that was opposite of theirs, they started getting nervous. They, and in fact, and we will find out in chapter 3. It's in chapter 3 of Mark. Where the scribes and Pharisees end up coming together to, uh, to conspire to kill Jesus. <laughs> the third chapter. <laughs> I think that's interesting. But they hear this Jesus guy pronouncing forgiveness. And they accuse him of blasphemy. They're saying basically, how dare this Galilean guy, this, this, this son of a carpenter. How, how in the world can he proclaim forgiveness to people? That's something only God can do. But I love that what it says in verse 6 is that they were reasoning in their hearts this accusation. They weren't speaking out loud. They weren't uh, verbally attacking Jesus. They were reasoning within themselves. And look at what Jesus does. He knows it because, of course, he is God. And it says, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, that's when he goes into his response to them. He knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly that these scribes and Pharisees were frustrated by Jesus just giving out forgiveness for free. They were, uh, uh, they were astonished that this Jesus would claim deity like this. He's claiming that he is God. He's giving out forgiveness of sins. He's showing mercy to all the wrong ki- kinds of people. He's, he's, uh, he's attracting all kinds of crowds to his name. I think they were frustrated by that, and I think they were also a little bit jealous of that. And Jesus saw that jealousy, and like all good teachers, he chose to sort of put these guys uh, on their mark, so to speak. And he wants to show that he's not just a good teacher, he's not just... This miracle guy from Galilee who's doing these uh, things by turning water into wine and healing uh, men from the palsy and turning uh, demons away. That's not just what he's about. So that's why, he is, that's why he proves in these verses here that he has control over, yes, both creation and, yes, redemption. Because he is the creator and he is the redeemer. He's sowing both. I have power over both. I can create, I can redeem, I can destroy too. I am God. He is saying to these people. He's just proving it without necessarily saying it with words. Jesus speaks forgiveness. I like that. He he says to this man of the palsy, "Your sins be forgiven." With the scribes and Pharisees, they had taken the law, the law of God, a law that was good and right and just. And they had turned it into a system where you had to perform certain things in order to get forgiveness. That if you met certain conditions, then you would be able to be pardoned. You would find your guilt fall off of you if you did certain things. If you fulfilled certain practices. If you washed your hands a certain way even. And Jesus is just saying, your sins be forgiven. <laughs> they were, I think they were just astonished at the simplicity of Jesus' message. He didn't give this sick man of the palsy any sort of ritual to perform. He didn't tell him to go out and make a smokestack and do this uh, seance and prayer thing or whatever. He just says, your sins are forgiven. And not only that, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he does. (laughs) Because he is creator. He is redeemer. And this whole thing just, just blows the mind of this crowd. That's what it's basically saying at the end of verse 12. Where the crowd is basically saying, we never saw it on this fashion. We've never seen or heard anything like this before. This guy is teaching uh, something that is completely new. It's foreign. We've never seen teaching like this. Because Jesus is saying, I have authority to forgive because I'm the one who is going to make forgiveness a reality. (laughs) You notice that? Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins even before he has gone to the cross to die for those sins. Because he is God. He has power over forgiveness. He has power over redemption. He has power over creation. He's saying right here, I am God and you are forgiven. And he's preaching this unexpected message. He has authority to heal and to pardon, to create and to redeem This is the lesson about the son who forgives, who is also God. But secondly, very quickly, I want to also talk about this second lesson that we see in the next couple of verses. Verses 13 through 17, a lesson about the sinner's friend. A lesson about the sinner's friend. Look at verse 13. Because we move from this scene right here in the house. And notice again where it says, and he went forth again by the seaside. That phrase, and went forth again, is another one of Mark's uh, traits of moving in passages of time. He's jumping uh, scenes, he's moving to a new scene, um, and he says, uh, excuse me, and he went forth again by the seaside, verse 13, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, that's, Matthew, the guy who wrote the book of Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So very quickly, we see this lesson about the sinner's friend. This passage of time is showing again Jesus' pattern to withdraw from the crowds. He has just formed this miracle of the guy uh, healed from paralysis. And he's drawn that crowd. That crowd that was noise that was reported about him. And he leaves again. He withdraws. He goes by the sea. And he's actually in an unexpected place. Because he calls this guy Levi. He calls this guy Matthew to follow him. The son of Alphaeus. Sitting at the receipt of custom. We have to see this scene for um, the scandal that it was. Because if you just read it, it doesn't sound like anything bad. Is just calling a customs broker to follow him. No, he's actually calling a tax collector. You know, Matthew was a publican. He was a tax collector. If you know anything about tax collectors in this day, you know that they are hated by, like, everyone. Remember that scandal from 2008 with Bernie Madoff and he stole billions of dollars from people in one of the largest Ponzi schemes in U.S. history? He was a social pariah in the United States. Everyone hated this guy. He had stolen so much money. Think about that with tax collectors. They were skimming money off of all their friends. They were employed by the Roman government. They were given money by the Roman government to have armies in order to enforce their tax laws. And then the the tax collectors were also skimming money off of that so that they could become rich themselves. They were just hated by everyone. The Roman soldiers hated them because most of the times it was Jews who were working in this capacity. And the Jews hated them because they were traitors. (laughs) They were just outcast people. No one liked them. Nobody would have wanted to be Matthew's friend. And uh, even more, Matthew, Levi, this guy, he would have been the least likely of person to say, I want that guy on my team. (laughs) Especially if you're going into ministry. That's why this calling of Matthew is so, again, unexpected. Levi, this guy, Matthew, would have been the the least person, the last person you would have been, uh, wanted to recruit to be on your missions team. (laughs) And yet Jesus goes to this guy and says, I want you, follow me. And he arose and followed him. It shows Jesus' affinity, again, to do something surprising and unexpected. He uh, subverts what we think of the Messiah should be and who the Messiah should be around. Because look at what happens next. Look at verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his, that is Levi's, house, Many publicans, so Levi's friends and sinners, sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto him, his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the, of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, doing some things again surprising. He's in a surprising place with surprising people around him. (laughs) He's not hanging out with the religious somebodies trying to brown nose himself into higher establishments. He is hanging out with social pariahs, publicans and sinners. He shouldn't be near these people. He was the Messiah. At least that's what the scribes and Pharisees were thinking. And here he is, and we have to see it again too, that Jesus sat at meat with them. Now, sitting at meats, eating dinner in this culture is not like we have it today. It's not, you know, microwave meals where you just pop it in for a minute or whatever and you have this great dish to uh, a hungry man meal. It's not like they had McDonald's either, where we have everything immediate. I'm not saying that's bad. If you like McDonald's, I'm not harping on McDonald's. But I'm just saying in our culture, we don't have the same sort of reverence for the dinner table that they had at this time. Sharing dinner with someone wasn't just about eating uh, carrots and potatoes and getting sustenance. Eating dinner with someone was sharing relationship with them. If you were sharing a table, you were sharing your life. You were aligning yourself with that person. It was a sacred sort of event. It was a holy sort of practice. It was something that had a lot of resonance and meaning in this culture. And so accepting this invitation, even accepting the invitation to eat with these people, Jesus was doing something that people thought that he shouldn't be doing. He was showing his willingness to be the friend of those people who are unfavorable, of those people who are undesirable. He says, those people who are sick with sin, I am the physician who has come to heal them. Those people who are sinners, I have come to be their righteousness. He's showing very clearly who it is and why he has come. And the Pharisees are griping at this. They're murmuring, how is it that he can eat and drink with publicans and sinners? How is it that this guy who's supposed to be the holy Messiah is hanging out with these, uh, these, these outcast people? And Jesus knows uh, that they're thinking that. And basically what he's saying, that's the entire point. We don't often think of this verse, Mark 2.17, where he says, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We don't think of that verse oftentimes when we think about Christmas. But I think that this is one of the most Christmas verses in your entire Bibles. Because why did we need Jesus, Jesus the baby in the manger at all, if not because we are filthy, rotten sinners? This is why He had to come in the first place. This is why we needed a Savior at all, because we are sinners. And he's, Jesus, by saying this, I, have, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's sort of using uh, some, a little bit of sarcasm, because He knows that the Pharisees see themselves as the righteous ones. And so He's basically saying, if you think that you're righteous, I'm not, I don't have anything to do with you. I have come to call the sinners, the people who know that they need something that needs to be fixed. I have come to call the sinners, the ones who know that they are down and out and they have no hope in and of themselves. I have come for those people. So if you don't see yourself as one of those people, then I can't have any dealings with you. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. Because Christmas is the celebration of the unexpected Savior that comes to us. Who says, don't fix yourselves. I'm going to come and fix all the problems myself. I'm going to take it into myself. I'm going to take all the sins of the whole world into myself. So that you can be made whole. So that you can be righteous. This is what, you know, there's that Stevie Wonder song. This is what Christmas means to me, right? And he talks about mistletoe and caroling and I don't know what else. I don't really listen to Stevie Wonder. But this verse is what Christmas means to me. That Christ came into the world to, uh, to save sinners. To lead sinners to repentance. That's what Christmas means to me. Because we have this infinite creator. And he's wrapped up in swaddling clothes as an infant crying in a manger. Think about that. An infinite God who's now an infant in Mary's arms. And that one, that one who's crying and wailing as all babies do, he is the one who would one day have his hands pierced and his side gashed with blood streaming from it so that he could save the world from their sins. And very clearly Jesus is saying, this is why I have come. This is my mission. I am the friend of sinners because sinners are all that there are. There's none righteous, no, not one. And Jesus' words here are piercing all the holiness that we think that we've earned by ourselves. And he's saying, I have come to be your holiness. This is what Christmas means to me. This is why I find this such a fascinating passage. Because it doesn't talk about Christmas things. But this is why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus coming into the world. Jesus incarnating, as Pastor Jay talked about on Sunday. As a human. He came into our world. By the way, no other religion in the world has that. Every other religion in the world says, do this in order to become something else. Jesus says, I have become like you so that you could become like me. It's the only religion that has that good news. And that's why we have the good news. Because Jesus has come to be our righteousness. Jesus has come to be the sinner's friend. Because sinners are all that there are. This is our unexpected Savior. And this is our good news. Let's pray.